So this morning we do have a difficult task. We're going to go from, from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 4. I want to ask a singular question before we start uh, to kind of frame what I think the storyteller is teaching us in this story. And my question is, why as human beings are we so prone to seek power? Why as human beings are we so prone to seek power? And for those of you who are saying, well, I'm not interested in power, let me soften it for you a little bit. Why as human beings are we so prone to seek control? It's the same word. just sounds a little better, right? We're so interested in control. And some of us are still saying, well, I don't care. I'm not interested. I'm not a control freak. And what I would suggest to you is way more than you think you are, you are. It's one of the things that I've learned about myself. I never thought... I was that way until I actually started seeing the realities. It's true for all of us as human beings that we're after power and control. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what it means to be Adam and Eve people. That even when they have literally everything they need, they jump for the chance at power and control and break fellowship. There's something in us that struggles to really be content even when we have much. And I think it comes because in the core of our soul, there are, we've talked about this before, three chief desires of our soul. Uh, And and we experience all of them, so maybe one of them a little more than the others, in in some combination. The search for significance, for acceptance, and for security. And these desires of our soul come out and we end up being discontent because we're not finding these realities. And in our discontentment, we seek for more power and control, not necessarily big leadership stakes or big public realities, but in every aspect of our life, from finance to vocation to family life to spouses to friendships to all aspects of it, to secure these things when they truly are found only in a relationship with our Creator. As we take this kind of broad journey over a couple of chapters in 2 Samuel, what we will find out is time and time again, here in these verses and throughout the rest of of the book, that people are struggling in the same way as us. They are after power and control. They lack contentment. The core desires of their soul are not uh, being filled. So where we last left the story, uh, David had been anointed king over Judah, just the tribe of Judah. I remember one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They had anointed him. They had come to Hebron. And David, you remember, had sent a message out to Jabesh Gilead asking them to come be part of the kingdom. And we were just beginning to get introduced to this guy named Abner. And Abner uh, was kind of the the chief of all the military under Saul when Saul was king. And what we found out about Abner last time we were together is that he took it upon himself to anoint Ishbosheth as king over the rest of Israel. Ishbosheth was a son uh, of Saul, and so there was there was uh, a bloodline from Saul to Ishbosheth to take the crown. But Ishbosheth, as we'll find out again today, 
was very weak in stature. I'm not sure that he aspired to this position of his own. And he was in many ways a puppet king for Abner, who, he, who himself wanted the power and the control that came with it. So Abner anoints Ishbosheth as king, and what happens immediately after that in the, in the end of chapter 2, in the rest of the, the flesh of, of, of chapter 2 after verse 12, is Abner begins a military assault on David and Judah. Now there's now civil war in Israel. And we really are pressed to understand Abner's kind of power grab in considering the chronology of the story and the geography of the story. Chronologically speaking, it tells us that David had been king for a number of years before Abner made his move to anoint Ishbosheth. He was doing it in direct opposition to what was happening in Judah and to kind of claim power for the vacuumed area of the rest of Israel before David's kind of reign grew to expand all of those areas. And what's fascinating to me is that Abner was well aware that David was God's anointed king, that David was God's chosen king. Saul had told him that several times before he died, and we'll find out before this story is over today that Abner himself is willing to tell David that he knew it in advance. So in the chronology of this story, waiting and knowing that David is is God's anointed, seeing him anointed king over Judah, seeing the kingdom begin to swell, seeing David's outreach to places like Jabesh Gilead and people coming in, Abner sets up a puppet king and tries to grab for power and control for himself. And we also see it in the geography because the first battle that happens in this civil war is in a place called Gibeon. And it's much closer to Hebron and where David is than where Abner is coming from. And so we see from the picture that Abner is making the assault. And David, through his commander Joab, is coming to meet him. And the battle does not go well for Abner. There's this bizarre, and I'll leave you to read it and make sense of it on your own. There's this bizarre pre-battle that happens where a bunch of guys get up and kill each other. And then the battle happens after that. And Abner and his forces are defeated pretty strongly. So much so that Abner is on the run. They are retreating. And there's this fascinating story that goes on. There's a guy named Asahel. And Asahel is the brother of Joab. You keeping all these names straight? Asahel is the brother of Joab. Joab is the commander of David's forces. They're fighting against Abner, who is the commander of Ishbosheth's forces who previously was the commander of Saul's forces, who was the father of Ishbosheth. Got it? Good. <laughs> so, uh, Asahel is super fast. He's like a track runner, a cross-country runner or whatever. It says in the scripture that he, that he runs like a gazelle. And for whatever reason, <clears throat> Asahel has it in his mind, he's going to track down Abner and he's going to kill him. So there's this crazy storyline while the, 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 the forces under Joab are, are pursuing the forces uh, under Abner and, and uh, Abner is retreating, the forces are retreating, that Asahel himself is chasing uh, uh, Abner and Abner's telling him to stop, stop, leave me alone, I don't want to fight you, I don't want to fight you because what we find out is that as fast as Asahel is, is as bad as he is as a soldier, right? Speed is all he's got. I remember... Uh, when I was growing up, I can't remember who it was. The, the Phillies were terrible, and I think they're going to be better this year. But when I was growing up, the Phillies were awful. 
And they had this one guy, and everyone was talking about this one guy. I can't remember who he was. Well, he's so fast, and we're so lucky to have this guy. And I remember my dad saying, yeah, but the problem with him is you can't steal first base, right? <laughs> you got to find a way to... And so that's Asahel's problem. You might be able to catch up to Abner, but when you catch up to him, it's not going to turn out well. And so finally, Abner gets tired of running, and he simply stands there with his spear, and Asahel comes running headlong into Abner's spear and dies, And finally, Abner and Joab are able to kind of negotiate peace and a halt for the time being of this battle that's going on. And in this halt, while war is happening elsewhere, Abner tries to secure his power from Ishbosheth by taking more concubines from the king. And Ishbosheth, strangely enough, uh, raises issue with this and he says, What are you doing? It's his only moment of sort of confrontation or strength in the story. And Abner has no part in it. Because he's being uh, confronted by Ishbosheth, he disowns Ishbosheth and lets him know he's turning his allegiance to David. Now, this isn't simply over uh, a little fight between the king and the commander of the army. This is Abner looking at the writing on the wall and saying, This is not going to go well for me unless I trade sides, right? It's the old, if you can't beat them, join them, right? And so Abner uh, leaves and goes to David and says to David, hey, if you'll receive me, I'll give you all of Israel. And they negotiate that David asked for some things. There's this negotiated peace where Abner is going to change sides. Unfortunately for Abner, Joab is not interested in having Abner on his team because Abner had killed Joab's brother. And so while David had negotiated all of these things, Abner was summoned by Joab in the town of Hebron, which interestingly enough was a city of refuge under God, which meant that even if you were a fleeing criminal, you were to be protected in the city limits there. And Abner calls him over, and in an alleyway, he executes him and kills him. And so in this crazy storyline of Abner from the middle of chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3, we see all kinds of people who are fascinated with power and control, don't we? I mean, look at Asahel, who wants to be the one who gets the big kill. And look at Joab, who is more interested in vengeance than in following God's law. But focus in with me just for a minute on Abner himself. Because there are two things that are striking here, and I think we need to consider them as human beings who are, uh, have a same kind of proclivity towards these realities and kind of take a moment to really understand the, the reality here. The first reality of pursuing and grabbing for power and control is that sometimes it leads us to move against God even when we know the truth. Think about it. Abner knew that David was God's choice. Abner knew that what was happening in Hebron and in Judah was what God wanted and was what was supposed to happen. And yet, the need to grab power and control trumped submitting to what God had. 
And so he willfully chose against what he knew. Let me make it personal for you. This is how this works in my life. <laughs> in my life, two things make me very, very happy. Respect and the truth. Right? So in my family order, we talk about this all the time. Tyler can tell you this. Is that if I feel like my boys are respecting me and telling me the truth, I can deal with almost anything else and we can live in a place of grace. But when I feel like I'm being disrespected or not told the truth, that's when my need to grab power and control kind of goes crazy on me, right? So if from the upstairs I hear a disrespectful comment down towards me, suddenly I turn into power-hungry dad from downstairs, right, that can yell louder than them who are upstairs, or who can make a scene charging up the stairs to exert my dominance and control over my boys who are not trying to do what I think they're doing. Yet, Knowing that the Bible says, hey, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Knowing that the Bible tells me to live a gospel-centered life. Knowing that the Bible tells me to lead with grace, that grace is a better teacher than the law. Knowing that the scripture tells me to be someone who, who, who corrects it gently. I set all of that aside because in the moment, the need for power and control, which I have labeled respect and honesty, right, far overcomes it. Are you like me at all? Like, relationally, you might relate to that, but there's probably any other aspect of your life where the, the need for power or control in a situation will lead you, if you're not careful, to move against God even when you know the truth. It's crazy to think about. And then, the need for power or control sometimes will lead us to move towards God but for the absolute wrong motivations, right? The story ends with Abner coming on David's side and saying things like, I know God has anointed you king, and this is right, and I can bring all of Israel, and this will be just like God wanted. Well, what has changed for Abner? Circumstances, right? Suddenly the best opportunity for power and control is to be aligned with David rather than to be opposing David. And for Abner, this is not a great moment of awakening where he's coming to submit himself to the king, rather someone who's coming to try to gain power or leverage or control by aligning himself to God's chosen king. You know how this works for us, church? It's called religion, isn't it? Religion is when we try to align ourselves in our behavior to God Believing that when we do that, we put him in our debt. He now owes us something. We've earned from him what we now believe we're entitled to. Either for a certain situation to work out like we want it to, for good things to happen, uh, for us to be richly blessed, as many uh, kind of prosperity people speak on TV about. For everything to kind of turn around and go well, right? Our allegiance to God is not based on God. It's based on the control and the power we think we can gain from being aligned to him. Do you see the danger of religion? Scripture is very careful to tell us time and time again, Old Testament and New Testament, that God sees the heart and that God desires the heart. God, let me just hear this and hear this well. God does not care about your behavior. 
right? If you come to God leading with behavior, you've missed the point. If you come to God leading with the heart, now I believe when you do that, it's going to necessarily impact your behavior. But when you come to God leading with the heart, then you've understood how God has created us to be. In essence, the true motivation for aligning yourself to God is not what you can gain from God, either a future ticket to heaven or some prosperity now or a situation to go the way you want. But it's because God is God and worthy to be worshipped. It's that he's the rightful king and we are not. And so we're willing, as humbling as it may be, to bow the knee before God. You want to know something that's true? Is that we serve what we worship. Do you know that? It's true. If you want to know why you behave the way you do, it's what you worship, right? And then if you look even further, why do we worship the things we do? It's because of what we love. So you worship what you love and you serve what you worship. If you want to know why your life is ordered the way it is, or my life is ordered the way it is, or why I find myself every once in a while charging up the stairs like an ogre at my defenseless young boys, it's because I'm worshiping the wrong thing. You see it? I'm worshiping the need for me to be significant, to be respected and told the truth and to be an authority, rather than worshiping God And as such, believing that I am an ambassador of God, entrusted by God with the care and the nurturing and the discipline of my children. Completely different paradigms. Do you see it? And what we worship is judged by what we love. What do I love in those situations? Me, right? But when we love God, we're prone to worship towards God, and our behaviors and our attitudes are driven out of our worship for God. That is what it means to live a gospel-centered life, to live a life in response to what God has done. For most of us, we're trying to just add behaviors to our existing order and therefore trying to earn some sway with God so some things can go our way. Listen, I spoke kind of lightly about heaven one day. I thank God that that's real, but there's way more to this relationship that God offers, especially in the now. And it's all about the presence of God with you as opposed to what you can extract from God for you. Does it make sense to you? And we see in Abner something that is true of all of us as humans, that we are probably more apt to align with God in order to gain something from him than we are because we actually love him and therefore want to worship him. If you can figure out how to do that 100% of the way, you are on a good path, and you need to have my job, right? Because I'm the guy running up the steps, screwing it up every other day. So don't, don't mishear me. <clears throat> but we see it in Abner in this way. The need for power and control that moves us in all the wrong ways. And then we get to chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, and we're introduced to to two guys who, who aren't that bright, right? Let's just be honest. Uh, Bana and Rechab are, are two kind of 
generals or, or leaders of different parts uh, of Ishbosheth's military. They've heard that Abner has been killed. They've seen that David's influence is growing. They understand that Ishbosheth is not a great leader. In fact, it says of Ishbosheth, I, I, honestly, I feel bad for him. It says, when, when, uh, when he heard that Abner had died, he lost all his courage. If you've read any of the story about Ishbosheth before, there wasn't much there to, to begin with, right? And it says that, that he's just kind of laying in his, in his, in his bed and, and napping, and there must be some level of depression and whatever that's going on. And in that moment, these two men who ought to be propping him up, who ought to be inspiring, who ought to be serving him, they come in and they kill him. And they cut his head off. And what do they do? They take it to David saying, look, we've killed the king of Israel, and now you can have the whole kingdom, and here is his head. And these guys, we've already read chapter 1, right? We saw what the Amalekite did, almost the exact same thing. And we're saying, what on earth are they doing? Don't they understand how David is going to respond to this? And sure enough, David is not excited about this. He mourns Ishbosheth's death. It's not supposed to happen this way. He has these men punished, executed for their actions. But in Bana and in Rechab, we again see human proclivity towards grabbing power and control, right? In fact, we see that sometimes the need to grab power and control leads us to justify questionable behavior based on circumstances. To put it in philosophical terms, situational ethics. Have you ever heard that before, right? That certain circumstances justify behavior that otherwise would be inappropriate, right? Should kings be executed by their servants? No, but in this situation, because David is God's rightful king, this is the right thing to do. And after all, it's really driven by their belief that if they do this and provide this to David, that he's going to reward them, that they won't be on the losing side of the battle, that they might not die in battle, and maybe they'll have positions of influence or at least be owed something by the new, uh, newly anointed king. How often in our lives do situations and circumstances present themselves opportunity for us to seize power or control by justifying wrong behavior based on the circumstances, right? It's the storyline of the, quote, little white lie, right? And everyone that's ever told a little white lie knows that when pressed, little white lies grow to medium white lies, and when pressed further, medium white lies grow to big white lies, and when pressed further, we've created a whole parallel universe, which we don't even believe. How often are we, because of our human nature, to grab for control in our life, to try to have power or control in relationships that seem like they're out of hand, to try to seize control of finances and vocations and have... And listen, I'm not telling you to live life by the seat of your pants. That's not the opposite of what we're talking about here. I'm just talking, you understand, when you have to exert yourself in such a way with closed fists on things, how often has it led you in the past, and just be honest with yourself, to justify wrong choices based on current circumstances? Our 
our behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> it happens because of our nature. And then while all of this is going on, there's David sitting in the background, right? So Abner leads this massive military campaign and anoints a king against him. And, and David, uh, through Joab, uh, repulses the attack. And David, it says in the beginning of chapter 3, that the house of David is growing while the house of Saul is shrinking. But in that storyline, we begin to see some disturbing realities about David. And this, for the reader, should begin to shake our confidence in this story. Because what happens in the beginning of chapter 3 is it lists a number of David's kids, and every single one of them is born of a different woman. And for many of us, we're prone to say, well, that was the Old Testament. That's just kind of how things were back then. Well, that's a lie, right? Just because things happened doesn't mean that God condoned it to happen that way. It's the same reason that led people to, to, to affirm slavery, as crazy as that might sound, because they saw it happening in places before in Scripture. God doesn't condone any of this behavior and that we see it in this man who was selected by God and of whom it is said that he is a heart like God's should be incredibly alarming to us. He should be different than the traditional king of the day, right? Because taking women in that day was all about two things for kings and powerful men. It was about status and it was about political gain, creating allegiances and alliances with other Kingdoms, And if you look through that list in the beginning of chapter 3, a couple of them are mentioned to be daughters of kings around him. And so what is David doing, right? Is he just kind of living his life? Or are we beginning to see in David the same sorts of things we see in men like Abner and Bana and Rechab and the Amalekite? Grabbing for power and for control. And the story that jumps out at me in the midst of all of this is the thing that David asks Abner to do for him in order for him to receive Abner back into his kingdom. He says of Abner, I want my wife Michael back. If you remember anything about the story of David, uh, David had won an incredible victory against the Philistines. And for that, Saul had given him his daughter Michael in marriage. And this was David's wife, and they were joined together, and, and, and they were married together. But as the relationship between Saul and David became more and more tense and more and more divided, Saul took her back from him and gave her to someone else. And now David is demanding her back, not this long-lost love of his, but simply to add to his long list of women, and likely not because of some deep affection he has for her, but probably because of political reasons that lead him to believe if he can have Michael back, it can be a bridge to the old kingdom that can kind of begin to heal the rift that had existed. And if you read the story in chapter 3 of Second Samuel, you find the king going and taking Michael out of her home. And her husband is running after her, sobbing, because he loves her so much. And David is sitting back with all of these women just ready to add another one to the list. 
can we call time out for just a minute and tell you, and say something? Misogyny is dead wrong, right? We cannot look at the scripture or look at created order and say, well, men are in power and boys will be boys. That's disgusting. And this story should strike us in a way. This woman's life is ruined because men are using her as a pawn in their power plays. Her first husband and her dad trading her back and forth as pawns. This is disgusting. It's revolting. And this is the guy who's supposed to have a heart like God's. Watching her be torn away from a man who loves her so that she can be added to some great list. Her life is ruined because of it. And so what do we learn from David? Well, to be overly practical, we learn that sometimes when we're pursuing power or control in our lives, we tend to use and manipulate other people to get what we want, right? And sometimes it's awfully subtle. This time, not so much. But the greater thing, uh, the bigger thing, not greater, bigger thing that we learn about this is that this kingdom is in big trouble. Because here was the king who was supposed to lead them in God's way. And before he even is king over the entire nation, we see extraordinarily large chinks in his armor. He's not the guy that they need. And now, as readers of the story, we are left with a very perplexing question. What now? Saul was not the king that they wanted, but God had done something miraculous. And here was David, and he was pure, and had a heart after God, and he, and he was not grabbing after the crown, and now all of a sudden things are changing in him, and we see in him a, a, a human proclivity towards all of these things. David, who was going to be the hero of Israel, is now just a regular guy, broken like the rest of us. Because what the storyteller wants us to know is that there is a hero of the story, and the hero is not David. The hero is God. Because the book is going to go on. And we know parts of the story. The kingdom is going to go on. And the kingdom is going to flourish. And it's going to grow. And ultimately God is going to make a covenant with David and say, your line is going to sit on this throne forever. Think about it. God looking down on this guy who he chose, who he walked with, who he preserved, who he empowered, and seeing him in his human flesh grab for power in the very same way that Adam and Eve had done in the garden. Why wouldn't God say, you know what, I'm done with this guy too? We would. And yet God, in the richness of his grace and his mercy, in his long-suffering patience for his people, persists in pursuing them. The kingdom will advance not because David is worthy, but because God desires his people. Because God's willing to stay and to pursue them and to love them. And I said a moment ago, it hits this climactic moment where a king will sit on the throne forever. But the truth is that it can't be David. In fact, God's not even going to let David build a house for him. 
Solomon will do that instead. And this king that God is after is not going to come anytime soon. In fact, for those of you who are familiar with the story of the scriptures, that king that God was talking about is Jesus. And Jesus arrives in the line of David, born in the city of Bethlehem, coming not to grab power, but to serve and and move in worship and submission to God. And what's fascinating about Jesus, in his royal coronation, you remember uh, in the triumphal entry to Jerusalem before his crucifixion, but what was thought of by his followers as this great crowning moment where he would be anointed as king and messiah, do you remember how he enters? It says he comes in on a donkey, lowly and humble. And that word lowly is the Greek word praoutes. It's often translated meek. And the word meek is an often misunderstood word. We often look at someone like Ishbosheth and think, well, he's a meek guy. Poor guy. He's kind of just meek. But meek is actually a strong word in Greek literature. So much so that the the word is actually used of of a powerful stallion or horse, a wild horse who is brought into submission to his master, who is trained and tamed and brought into submission. He does not lose his power or or his passion, but he does it in submission to his master. And this is the picture of our King Jesus who fully puts his power and his authority, his equality with God in submission to the plan of God himself so that all might be rescued. Jesus himself in his most famous of sermons said, what? It's the praoutes that will inherit the earth. The meek, blessed are they, for they will inherit the earth. What does that mean? Is that just about possessing land? We understand that Jesus took the concept of land and he made it, uh, he, uh, he understood it in its fullness of, of shalom, this Jewish concept where everything in the world is as it should be. So how do the meek inherit the land? It's that the meek attains significance and security and acceptance in God's kingdom. And the things that they long for when they put themselves in submission to the rightful king are beginning to be finally realized. Here's the problem, church. We could end this sermon and say, so go be meek. But you can't. You're not capable of it. And I'm even worse than you, right? We're not capable of it. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, very famously says, if any of you are weary, if any of you have gotten to the point where you are tired of pursuing power and control, if you're tired of desperately looking for significance, desperately looking for acceptance and security in this life, if you're tired, he says, come to Come to me, for I am humble. The word is praoutes, meek. And he says, and you can be joined to me. And listen to this. And you will have rest for.
Jesus preached, hey, if you want to inherit the earth, go be meek. And full well knowing that we have no chance at that, he says, if you're tired, come to be. If you would be joined to Jesus, you could have that which your soul desperately longs for. That's why Jesus said, I've come to give life and give it to its fullest extent. He wasn't talking just about eternal life that lasts forever. He was talking about quality of life, not defined by your bank account, your job, or the success of your family, but by the full realization of significance, acceptance, and security that God created you to know and experience in connection to him. If you are anything like me, then we are a lot like Abner, We're a lot like Asahel. We tend to be like Joab. Sometimes we're like Bena and Rechab. And oftentimes we're like David. And if you are tired of trying to get something on your own, can I suggest you turn your hearts, your hearts, not your behavior, towards the one who shows us and who has won for us the life we long for. Can I pray with you?